a mission to a distant asteroid and a star showing signs it might blow up. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. A spacecraft more than 160 million miles away is about to suck up some asteroid dust, then send it back to Earth. The OSIRIS-REx mission will collect the samples from Bennu this summer, and mission managers are carefully planning the maneuver. Scientists hope to uncover the building blocks of early life in the universe when the sample arrives back here on Earth in 2023. We'll talk with mission scientist Umberto Campines about the final site selected by the team and the surprises OSIRIS-REx uncovered along the way. Then, the star Betelgeuse is causing quite a stir after astronomers observe the star brightening and dimming in the night sky. Is it going to blow up? We'll talk to our panel of experts on this week's segment, I'd Like to Know. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? But first, let's take a look at the latest space stories making headlines. Three, two, one, zero. Ignition, liftoff, simplify, aim high. Go Falcon, go Dragon. SpaceX completed a test of a critical safety system on its new spacecraft designed to carry NASA astronauts. It started like any other launch from Kennedy Space Center until about a minute and a half after liftoff. That's when engines on the capsule fired, pushing the spacecraft away from the rocket. The system is designed to protect future astronauts on board in case there's an emergency mid-flight. NASA is working with private companies like SpaceX to ferry astronauts to the station. NASA's Administrator Jim Bridenstine and SpaceX's chief designer Elon Musk are calling the test mission a success. The test clears the way for SpaceX and NASA's next step, human launches on the Crew Dragon. Shuttle veteran astronauts Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley are slated to ride the capsule on its first crewed mission as early as April. The Mars 2020 rover is closer to getting a new name. NASA launched a naming contest for K-12 students to name the next rover heading to the Red Planet, and a panel of judges narrowed it down to nine finalists. Endurance, tenacity, promise, perseverance, vision, clarity, ingenuity, fortitude, and courage. The contest now moves to a public poll, which opened today and remains open until January 27th. NASA plans to launch the rover from Kennedy Space Center in July or August, and it will land in the Jezero Crater on Mars in February of next year. Stay up to date on the latest space news. Visit our website at wmfe.org space. Give me a follow on Twitter for the latest space news. I'm at SpaceBrendan. After launching from Florida back in 2016, the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft has been exploring the asteroid Bennu. The plan is to snag a sample of the dust and dirt from the surface and send it back here to Earth. Scientists say the surface of Bennu contains evidence of how life formed on our planet, and understanding Bennu can also help protect us from asteroids if they ever threaten to hit us here on Earth. It's been a busy few months for scientists on the spacecraft's imaging team. Turns out, the asteroid isn't as smooth as they predicted, making the sample selection site a bit more difficult. The mission made earlier headlines when it discovered the asteroid spewing particles into space. Since then, it has uncovered a slew of unpredicted characteristics, all helping scientists better understand these asteroids. To talk more about the surprises and the final sample selection site, we're joined by Umberto Campines. He's a professor at the University of Central Florida and member of the OSIRIS-REx mission team. This mission has yielded so many surprises, has it not? Like this, this is this is scientific discovery 
you know, at its truest definition. Um, tell me about that as as someone working on the team. What's it like to be getting all of these surprises from Bennu? <laughs> it, it seems like every week we talk about something different. It's a good problem to have. It makes our lives uh, very exciting and watch out what you wish for because it could come true, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you could be on a mission where uh, you had planned very well and most of what you predicted has come you know, come to be. So the characteristics of Bennu are mostly what we expected. But these surprises have also made our lives more, much more interesting, mm-hmm. uh, both scientifically and also operationally. They've been much more challenging mm-hmm. because, um, for example, one, the first big surprise was that Bennu, instead of having these smooth areas near the equator, which were where we expected a lot of dust to accumulate and mm-hmm. there be safe areas for us to come down with the spacecraft and pick up the sample easily and then come back to Earth, well, they didn't exist. Mm-hmm. It the surface is a lot rockier than we expected. Right, and we and, have to remind our listeners: you need a smooth surface because the spacecraft is going to get very, very close to the surface, put its arm out, and collect some of this dust. You don't, you don't want it knocking over, a, or knocking into a boulder or a rock, right? Right. We don't want them running into rocks, uh, and absolutely. And so uh, the navigation team told us, "Hey, we need a rock, um, uh, an area." of 150 uh, feet diameter without any rocks, and we can safely deliver the spacecraft into that area, pick up the sample, and and come back. And the very first map that was taken when we were approaching the asteroid showed that there was no such place. And then the navigation team, which, by the way, my hat's off to them because they're very good, said, oh, the spacecraft is navigating so well. And we understand all of the uncertainties so well that we can put it down into a, a spot half that size, wow. 75 feet. And we go, bang, no. <laughs> Don't have it. <laughs> the, the, the asteroid does not have such a place. And they said, how big are the biggest areas? We said, about 10 meters, about 30 feet. And, and then they said, we need, to, we need to change the way we do this. <laughs> and they did. It's amazing what they came up with. They, they came up with a, a system that is not only has an altimeter, in other words, something that tells you how far away from mm-hmm. the surface you are, but it also will have these um, active imaging systems where the spacecraft will uh, in, uh, 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 autonomously, it will first fly over the candidate areas, image them in detail, and then as it's coming down to take the sample, it will compare the maps that it's already made with what the cameras are seeing. Just to make sure it's in the right spot. Right. And so if it's headed to the right spot, no problem. If it's headed to one of the rocks around it, then it can make corrections. uh, There there were four sites that we narrowed it down to, and um, the um, Canadian Space Agency has an instrument on our spacecraft that they provided to the mission called OLA, um, and it is a, uh, a laser altimeter and imager, um, and they've they have a great uh, animation uh, at the website uh, asteroidmission.org. And we'll put it in the show notes so folks can take a look at it. Okay, out of the four sites, which all of them have bird names, and that's because Bennu mm. is the name of a mythical bird that came out of the heart of the uh, Egyptian god Osiris, and that name got picked by an eight-year-old. Um, student, there was a, a competition by the Planetary Society, and this eight-year-old student won by suggesting this name, which was you know, we wanted something related to Osiris, the mm-hmm. name of our mission, Osiris Rex. 
and the the it from the the Egyptian mythology he picked his name. So all of the names on the surface of Bennu, uh, we are giving them bird names or mythical birds of mm-hmm. flying cle- creatures of some kind. Mm-hmm. So um, and you identified like dozens of these sites, right? Uh, yes, okay. it, it, we we first identified about thirty some. Then we brought it down to sixteen, then mm-hmm. to eight, then to four, and now to two. It's going to be uh, Nightingale and Osprey are the two, the, the primary and the, and the backup. Mm-hmm. And um, the the navigation team tells us that they have a high probability of delivering the spacecraft in and out safely of both of these. Mm-hmm. But it's still not a trivial maneuver. So as a, as a result, between now and the time when we do the actual sampling, there's going to be a number of rehearsals and making sure that the whole process gets understood. And they're continuing to well. build that map for OSIRIS-REx, yes, right? Yes, and, and the spacecraft is going down into Nightingale and Osprey and making the detailed maps so when the maneuver is actually happening, the onboard com- computer can be comparing what the cameras are seeing with what the map is and making corrections to make sure that the sample, the sampling, the spacecraft is going to the safest area of that sample site. And if the corrections are not good enough it, and if it's headed towards one of those boulders, it can do a wave off and then mm-hmm. come back later. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's it's just... Um, as I said earlier, it's a good problem to have because our lives are very interesting. Um, once we pick up the sample, we are not immediately heading back to Earth because the window for us to head back to Earth opens in March of 2021. So we will have a few more months between having uh, uh, acquired the sample, having the sample in our capsule. Mm-hmm. The spacecraft is going to use the time that it needs to stay there because otherwise the dynamics of returning to Earth right. don't work out to continue to map the asteroid. So I'm looking forward to that time when we don't have the pressure of, you know... Of <laughs> Getting your provi- sample. And <laughs> yeah, of, of providing very detailed maps to get the sample and make keep the spacecraft safe and doing a little bit more science. Um, and then I'm, of course, looking forward to having that sample back oh, on yeah. Earth. And the story that that sample, the stories that that sample will tell us mm-hmm. are going to be amazing because every little grain is likely to have a different history of of forming in a different asteroid of being heated or not of being impacted or not and it they're going to tell us probably uh, a, an amazing amount of of information about how the solar system formed how asteroids form of course how uh organic material may have not only formed but also got delivered to Earth. And one of the interesting things, and it's the main scientific um, justification for the mission, is that this type of asteroids has organic material. And we believe that that is the organic material got delivered to Earth by the asteroids and comets that impacted Earth because Earth formed so hot that its surface was molten rock. And once that molten rock cools and solidifies, the, this, the, that cool and solid surface of the Earth is inert. In other words, it has no organic material because it would have been burnt during mm-hmm. that phase. And so you have a cool and solid surface, but no organic materials. The organics that were delivered by impacts from asteroids and comets were th- what preceded the formation of life. And since we don't know that step between a complex 
organic molecule and a living cell, mm-hmm. uh, we would like to know what it is by studying the inventory of organic molecules that predated life on Earth. We may be able to understand how life formed on Earth and how it might have formed on Mars and the moons of Jupiter and planets around other stars. So that is the main scientific uh, mm-hmm. justification for our mission. The main practical uh, uh, justification for the mission is that Bennu is the most potentially hazardous asteroid. Mm-hmm. And I've said this uh, you know, in, in our interviews before, but let me remind you. Uh, potentially hazardous means it's not threatening Earth right now, but it could in the future. In the case of Bennu, in about another 160 years or so, it could threaten Earth. So if we have to deflect Bennu or an asteroid like it, it's very important for us to study it. And I so know we, how. So we right? know how. Correct. <laughs> and But as individuals, we don't have to lose any sleep over this. Okay. Because the chances of this of an asteroid hitting Earth during our lifetimes is so low that we don't have to worry about 160 it. years. We'll be long gone, you and I, right? Well, not just that, <laughs> but that's the, in 160 years, the chances of it uh, coming close to Earth are large enough for us to maybe worry about it. Okay. But it's not guaranteed that okay. it would have it. You know, the chances of an asteroid hitting Earth, you know, eventually are 100%, right? It has happened and it will happen unless mm-hmm. we stop it. And in the past, it has been very catastrophic. You can ask the dinosaurs, right? right? <laughs> so we we would like to maintain our civilization on Earth. An impact for an asteroid like Bennu would wipe out civilization, which would basically produce so much dust that it would reflect sunlight. It would produce a winter that would go from the equator to the poles, last several years. All the crops would fail. Civilization would collapse. <laughs> I'm sure the dinosaurs wish they had no Cyrus Rex mission is what you're getting at, right? Yes. Yeah. So, Umberto... This is it's a fascinating mission that's going to kind of, you know, open up that that first chapter of of how life formed in the solar system. We're learning about how to protect life by by protecting from these asteroids. But what is what is OSIRIS-REx doing for you as as a planetary scientist uh, to better understand asteroids? Is it changing the way planetary scientists think about these these bodies? It sure is. I mean, many of the things that we predicted have, it's in, 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 indeed what we found. But the surprises have also opened up new interesting possibilities. And so, for example, the way in which these asteroids form, which is by you know, impacts that completely shatter the parent body. So Bennu is the result of a larger asteroid having hit, been hit by a piece of another asteroid and being broken up into all these particles that came back together because of gravity. So we think we understand that process, but it we didn't understand it well enough to predict that it was going to be completely rocky as opposed to dusty in part of its surface, for example. Mm. And on the... The physical characteristics of the surface are surprising. The fact that this thing is ejecting particles is surprising. The composition of the surface is surprising. The um, we, we expected it to be mostly hydrated minerals, and it is, but it varies. It changes from spot to spot, and uh, that's we, we, we haven't uh, completely understood how that came about. And uh, we may be able to pinpoint where in the main asteroid belt Bennu came from and then put Bennu's characteristics in the bigger mm. uh, uh, perspective of what's going on out there. And then in terms of practical and uh, even economical um, activities, the Bennu may be the first asteroid to get mined. 
because its orbit makes it very easy to reach from Earth and come back from Earth to Earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't have the technology yet, but there are a number of companies and governments that are studying this. And if we are able to extract water from asteroids cheaper than they can be launched from from the ground. And so, I mean, SpaceX and, and uh, Blue Origins are doing great things to lower the cost of launching, but mm-hmm. they're still very expensive, right? Mm-hmm. The moment that you can extract water from asteroids and deliver them to Earth's orbit cheaper than launching them, which is, you know, it's launching them is very expensive. So the moment you can do that, you have a whole market of Earth-orbiting satellites that are going to want that water, either, well, most likely by breaking it into hydrogen and oxygen, making them fuel, mm-hmm. or for other reasons, and you know, for maybe human consumption for the space station. If if you can provide water in space cheaper than you can launch it, you have a huge market. Mm-hmm. So we are also providing the first step towards a space economy that could be self-sustaining because we have so many Earth's orbiting satellites for communications, for weather, for other reasons that can benefit from this. And so there's there's a whole frontier out there that is going to start uh, generating employment, activity. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's, it's also going to uh, encourage many more missions to many more asteroids where we're going to find out more scientific more. stuff. Yeah. So it's going to be kind of like the gold rush of California. Uh, so anyway, so yeah, um, OSIRIS-REx is the first step on really exciting things. I just submitted a paper on comparing Bennu with other a- active mm-hmm. asteroids. And uh, so it has to go through the referee mm-hmm. process and eventually it will be published. But um, that's only one of many. I'm also a co-author of a number of mm-hmm. other great ideas that my colleagues have had and have asked me to help them with it. Mm-hmm. And I, I asked them to help them, to help me on this one. So there's a great collaboration. Um, we are in, uh, we have, um, it's kind of a good problem to have. I have about seven telecons a week, <laughs> some of which last two and a half hours. So I'm online talking with colleagues from mm-hmm. around the world often. But what a privilege, mm-hmm. right? And then I, we meet in Tucson often. We meet uh, in, in other places. And so it's, um, it's just it's, it's wonderful. There are re- uh, observations about Bennu that we haven't even had time to touch because we're so focused on finding spacecraft that. safety, finding the, 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 the sampling sites and, and returning that sample to Earth that once that is done, we're going to have more time to look at these things in detail. Uh, it's it's uh, like a goldmine. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to ask you to come back on as this mission continues and, and tell us more about the surprises that you're finding at Asteroid Bennu. I'll be delighted. We've been speaking with Humberto Campines. He is a planetary scientist and a, uh, a member of the OSIRIS-REx science team. Humberto, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Still to come, what's going on with Betelgeuse? A star in the Orion constellation has been dimming in recent weeks. Does that mean it's about to die? Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. The star Betelgeuse is one of the brightest stars in the sky. You can see it in the constellation Orion. But recently the star has fluctuated in brightness, drawing the attention of astronomers and amateur observers. Is Betelgeuse about to blow up? On this week's segment, I'd like to know. I ask our panel of expert physicists from the University of Central Florida, is this the end of the star? Planetary scientists Addie Dove and Josh Caldwell, along with cosmologist Jim Cooney, 
hosts the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, and they join me here today. I begin the conversation asking Jim if and when this thing's going to explode. Uh, it's going to blow up, but uh, sometime in the next few hundred thousand years. I think we're interested in it right now because over the last few months, year or few months, especially, yeah, I guess months, it's been dimming rather prodigiously. Oh. Uh, so, and uh, precipitously. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so Betelgeuse is a supermassive star. It is a, uh, a star near the end of its life, and stars near the end of their lives do get brighter and dimmer on uh, fairly short timescales. We've been watching Betelgeuse. I mean, it's one of the brightest stars in the sky. Uh, one of the top ten, typically, one of the top ten brightest stars in the sky. So we've been watching it continuously for hundreds of years now. It does get brighter and dimmer, but over the last few months, it's gotten dimmer quite dramatically, like 20% dimmer or something like this, which is way dimmer than it's gotten in recorded history, which makes it interesting. Means, I mean, so we're wondering, does that mean... It's about to blow. It's about to blow. Yeah. Uh, I said no because <laughs> everybody wants that to be the case. We've been waiting downer. for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been waiting for this thing to blow up since I knew about it, right? 20, 20, 25 years ago. <laughs> and every time I look out there, I'm like, did it go to today? It didn't. Um, but what's happening on its outside is not actually necessarily so intimately connected to what's happening on the inside. What, what it's going to go is when it runs out of nuclear fuel and some crazy things happen in its core. But what happens at its core and what happens in its photosphere, the outer part of this star that you actually see, they're connected, but they're not as connected as... This star is huge. You want them to be, right. If, mm-hmm. if, if our sun were replaced by this star, we would be inside it. And so would Mars. Wow. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's a giant star, and we're seeing those outer layers. So there's all sorts of flopping around of those outer layers that can be producing mm-hmm. these sort of brightness variations. As Jim said, the explosive part is the, the nugget at the center. Yeah. So, we'll, we'll, so we'll, we're seeing it dim. Will we have any other indication that this bad boy is going to blow? Well, the trouble just, is – Just to watch and wait. <laughs> kind of. I mean the, the trouble is – well, no. Understanding when it's going to blow based on what we're seeing would mean that we'd have to really well understand all the physics of stars, <laughs> right, from their from their core all the way out to the outside. And we have lots of equations with lots of fun things. I teach a course in stellar <laughs> astrophysics, but the reality is these are all just models that are not that great. And we don't have a lot of observations of stars before they go supernova. Right. That's so what usually we, mean. we see super, and we haven't seen any supernova sort of nearby in a long time. Usually right. we detect supernova when they happen or just after they happen. Um, so we don't know a lot of what happens right before that. That's mm-hmm. still a lot of where the models yeah. are sort right. of hand wavy. You may have a couple hours notice because one thing that we, we are sure that will happen just before we see the supernova is we're going to see a flux of neutrinos coming from this. So neutrinos are little tiny particles, subatomic particles that are produced in huge numbers in a supernova, and they will propagate outward faster. They won't travel faster than light, but they'll start streaming at us before the light will. And so we have some neutrino detectors on Earth, and if we see a whole bunch of neutrinos coming from that part of the sky... Everybody's going to scramble to their telescopes. We're going to freak out and we know it's coming. Uh, <laughs> well, so. my guess is, and, and I'm sure astronomers are already doing this, is there's quite a few telescopes pointed at this thing anyways, just in case it does happen, right? Or, or yeah, they can not, be... Not necessarily the big, giant telescopes, but lots and lots of amateur telescopes are pointed that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as soon as anything starts to happen, you can bet that all the big major telescopes... I mean, one of the exciting things about this story is you can just go out and see the star with the naked eye, and you can tell that it is dimmer than it was before. If it, you looked at it before. 
Well, yeah, and or if you believe us, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, because it, it used to be the brightest star in the constellation, right? Orion. It's one of the shoulders in Orion, depending on your perspective, I guess. And uh, it's now not the brightest star in the constellation. You can tell that it's red. It's a red supergiant. You can see the red color, and you can see, oh, gee, Rigel, right, is the uh, mm-hmm. the, the leg foot. star that is now noticeably brighter than than Betelgeuse and. Mm-hmm. If it returns to its former glory, which it probably will in the next Maybe few months, in the next few months, yeah, then you'll be able to just on your own be monitoring the star with the naked eye in in hmm. April 2020. Say, oh wow, that star's I can see with my own eyes. That it's star bright. is now dramatically brighter than it was a few months ago. So while it might not happen immediately, um, when this star does go supernova, what mm-hmm. will, do we have to worry about that here on Earth? Oh. No. 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 You it'll only be awesome. have to you only have to worry it'll because, be awesome. because <laughs> all of the astronomers will be busy doing that. Yeah, yeah. They'll be distracted. So it'll be cool. I mean the, the thing that you'll notice of course it's going to get way way brighter. It'll get around the brightness of the full moon, you know, between half and one times the brightness of the full moon. So it'll be visible in the daytime sky as well as very obvious in the nighttime sky. Of course it's going to be ridiculous. Uh if you're really close to a supernova, it's something to worry about, <laughs> right? Uh but this thing is 600ish light years away, which means all of the really dangerous stuff, the X-rays and all that kind of stuff that, would, that are produced in this, are, are not going to significantly affect us. We're, we're shielded from that by our own magnetic field and uh, and the distance between us. So, if the sun went supernova, which it will not, ever, <laughs> thank you, Jim. Um, we, we would, of course, all die. Or and even if a, a nearby star like <laughs> Alpha Centauri or something like that, those things went super. I mean, they won't either. They're not the kind of stars that do that. But if they did, we'd be in trouble. Betelgeuse, we're not going to be in trouble. We're just going to get the show. It's close enough that it's going to be far closer than any supernova in human history, uh, which will be awesome. It'll be the first supernova that we've seen in our galaxy in the age of telescopes and the age of modern technology. So that's going to be amazing, but it's not going to hurt you. And it'll be visible for months, so you don't need to worry about missing it. Okay. Yeah, you will not miss it. It's not a, not a quick event. Um, Addie, um, just briefly, um, there was a little bit of excitement with the LIGO detector um, and happening around this at the same time. Yeah. Why was everybody kind of looking at gravitational waves um, when this was happening? Um, yeah, so there was there was a, an alert that went out that there was some, some signal that had probably been detected by LIGO at about the same time. It was sort of, I think it was in this sort of similar area of the sky as mm-hmm. Betelgeuse, but it wasn't like, it wasn't right there. Um, and this is just because we will probably see some sort of gravitational wave signal mm-hmm. uh, when this thing goes supernova. False alarm, but it got everyone excited. It was on the front page of Reddit. It was really cool. Oh, oh man. Yeah. Cool. That's, and that's pretty, how, that's and how you think, know public was indeed. And you can sign up for you can sign up for LIGO alerts. Uh, so that, like the public can there's a there's an app and you can get alerts when LIGO gets a detection or something like that. Well nice. Jim, if anything bad is gonna happen, just you know, give me a heads up Will first. Do. All right. You're on my list. That was cosmologist Jim Cooney and planetary scientists Addie Dove and Josh Caldwell. They're physicists at the University of Central Florida and host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Find it wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. If you've got a question for our segment I'd like to know, send it in. Shoot me an email at arewetheryet at wmfe.org or find us on social media and drop your question there. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Are We There Yet podcast. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Production assistance from Danielle Pryor. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. You can find more space news online at wmfe.org slash space. 
Never miss a show and get bonus content and interviews delivered straight to your smartphone or speaker. Subscribe to the Are We There Yet podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.